Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice, and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. pandemic has taught us anything, it has taught us that individuals working in healthcare are true heroes. To celebrate these workers and share their stories, we are introducing a podcast series called Healthcare Heroes. We will invite distinguished leaders in the healthcare field who are promoting social justice by caring for underserved communities. We will focus on leaders who represent underrepresented groups in the health professions to provide role models and inspiration for our students who may not see themselves represented in the leadership of their chosen professions. The first in this series is moderated by Dr. Melissa Hogan, guest host and co-dean of Roosevelt College of Science, Health and Pharmacy. Dean Hogan sits down with Dr. Lemry Al Carter to talk about his role as the Executive Director and CEO of the National Association of Boards of Pharmacy. They will discuss that although the pharmacy profession in America is becoming more racially diverse, the leadership remains mostly white, and what we can do to change that. Let's let Dean Hogan take it from here. Enjoy their conversation. Good afternoon, and welcome to our first session of the Healthcare Heroes discussion series here in the College of Science, Health, and Pharmacy at Roosevelt University. This series is designed to provide you with the opportunity to hear from healthcare professionals who are leaders and advocates for access for the medically underserved, diversity in health professions, and other social justice initiatives. We feature speakers with diverse backgrounds, representing traditionally underrepresented groups in the healthcare professions. Today, we are proud to welcome Dr. Al Carter. Dr. Carter earned his Doctor of Pharmacy degree from Xavier University of Louisiana. He received a master's degree focused on pharmacy regulation and policy from the University of Florida. Dr. Carter is the Executive Director of the National Association of Boards of Pharmacy. NABP is an international organization whose membership includes the state boards of pharmacy across the U.S., as well as the provincial pharmacy regulatory agencies in Canada. A primary goal of NABP is to protect public health, and it is the organization that is responsible for the pharmacy licensing exams, NAPLEX and MPJE. Dr. Carter also serves as a governor of the Pharmacy Technician Certification Board, Board of Directors, and is chair of the Certification Council. Over the years, he's provided expert witness testimony and consultation in the areas of pharmacy practice and regulation. Dr. Carter is a former member and chair of the Illinois State Board of Pharmacy. In addition to serving on the board, he was also appointed by the Illinois House of Representatives to serve two terms on the Illinois Collaborative Pharmaceutical Task Force. 
Previously, Dr. Carter oversaw pharmacy operations and professional affairs in the community pharmacy setting and was responsible for the day-to-day -day operations and pharmacy regulatory oversight of more than 9,000 pharmacies in the U.S. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Carter. Thank you. We're going to have to shorten that bio. That's way too long. <laughs> I did shorten it. <laughs> oh, we'll work on that. How's everyone? Good. Thank you all for having me. I greatly appreciate it. I didn't know I was the first. You are the first. Oh, man. So no pressure. Okay. No pressure. All right. You're setting the standard. I, I will try. I'll try. So thank you for joining us. We're going to talk about your current role and what you do. We're going to talk about your career trajectory and development, and then I want to give you a chance to talk about how you have faced challenges in your career and to provide information on what inspires you. Okay. So first of all, Executive Director of NAVP, what do you do? <laughs> oh, what don't I do? There's a lot that's involved in this role, and really, you know, for NABP, our membership is the 50 state boards of pharmacy, and so what NABP is responsible for doing is providing them with resources and tools to help them better, to better efficiently do their job, and that is protecting public health in their states. In addition to that, we'll meet with the different you know, agencies within the federal government, such as FDA, the DEA, and then we serve as kind of like a sounding board and then also working with the state boards to address concerns that they may have with these agencies. You all are very aware we administer the NAPLEX exam, and so working with the deans from the College of Pharmacy, so AACP and then ACPE, uh, as well to make sure that the exam is equipped in a way to test competency of those graduating. And then we work on a bunch of other initiatives as far as we have accreditation programs within pharmacies throughout the U.S. That is part of our work with FDA, and then we also have what is we're working with now with the DEA and it's dot pharmacy and, and basically or safe dot pharmacy and it's it's a website that is used to help promote safe pharmacies both internet pharmacies online pharmacies and then pharmacies you know your corner drugstores or what have you but making sure that we can keep uh, illegal actors from providing you know alternate routes for illicit drugs to get into the market into the wrong hands. Did you always know you wanted to be executive director of NAVP? <laughs> I didn't always know I wanted to be a pharmacist. So, <laughs> um, No, I, I will tell you when I first started practicing, I, I worked for Walgreens for 18 years prior to coming to NAVP. And when I first started practicing, I, I basically went into a pharmacy when I was a student and was like, I need a job because my parents can afford to pay for my tuition. So I was like, all right, I got to find something in I started working in retail pharmacy. I didn't know the first thing about pharmacy when I, when I came into pharmacy school. And so I didn't even know anything about a board of pharmacy until I got, until I moved up to Chicago for, for Walgreens. And it was two years later when I was like, oh, this is how this works. And, you know, 10 years after that is when I was like, I want his job. And, the, you know, I, I didn't think it would ever happen. And I knew that, you know, I out of all the qualified individuals that would potentially be looking for his position, that I stood a very short chance of getting it, but I guess it worked out in the way that it was supposed to. So let's talk a little bit about what you did at Walgreens and CVS, because you had several years there in the corporate office mm -hmm. handling regulatory affairs and, and operations. So 
What was your job? So CBS was my sabbatical. <laughs> or at least that's what I say to everyone. I don't uh, think anyone has ever referred to CBS as a sabbatical before. Hopefully no one here works in CBS. Is no offense to anyone if you do. But I just worked so long with Walgreens. So I started off with Walgreens as an intern in, in pharmacy school and did that for four years. Um, worked through pharmacy school. And then afterwards, I practiced for a year back in Biloxi, Mississippi, which is where I'm from. And then Hurricane Katrina hit. Uh, Hurricane Katrina actually hit. I graduated in May, Hurricane Katrina hit in August. And so I worked there for a year after Hurricane Katrina, helping to rebuild just the area. And then I was asked by Walgreens to come to corporate to lead or develop their pharmacy campus recruiting program. When I graduated, it was at a time when there was a large shortage of pharmacists. So you can basically pick where you wanted to, pick which city you wanted to go to, uh, pick what type of job you wanted. And, and in many ways, they were offering a lot of sign-on bonuses. And it's kind of the same way in certain situations now uh, as we deal with COVID and, and burnout. And so my job was to basically go to pharmacy campuses, talk to the dean, tell them about Walgreens, and, and then speak to the students. Very similar to what I'm doing today about why come into Walgreens and why going into community pharmacy. And so I was responsible for recruiting pharmacists across the U.S. for Walgreens and did that for two years. And then I was approached about going into pharmacy operations and, and working in a pharmacy regulatory space. And so when I was approached about doing that, I told them no. And it was actually, you'll know, Phil Burgess was the, the person who also was a former chair of the Illinois State Board of Pharmacy. And I told him no, because I had the best job in the world. I mean, I would take deans out, uh, we'd go to dinner, you know, have a great meal, and then I'd come talk to students, which was like my passion. I was like, I don't want to go into operations. I don't want to work very long hours and, you know, deal with the stress of being under the microscope the whole time. Um, and so I was finally voluntold, basically, that I was going to be doing this position. And, and it was probably the best thing that happened to me, because at the time, again, I didn't know anything about regulatory space. I didn't know anything about a board of pharmacy. I'd never appeared in front of a board of pharmacy. And so it was just an interesting dynamic that was a change to what I was used to doing. And, and that's kind of like where it opened up so many doors. And, and it was, I was led in that way when Phil Burgess at the time said, do you want to continue to do what you do and have fun, or do you want to make a change to the profession? Wow. And that's kind of like when it was like, all right, maybe I should be doing this. And so it was, it was interesting at the time because, I mean, I was three years out of pharmacy school and I was like, I don't want to do that. I want to have fun. Um, so, so did you make a change to the profession? I feel like I have. Um, I think it's, it's, it's a continuation of progress and change that's required. And, you know, in, in doing that, and, and I spent 12 years, uh, 14 years, pretty much working with boards of pharmacy across the U.S. And, and you know, I've seen many changes in, in states. I've seen some states that have been very resistant to change. So I would say in, in certain states that I feel like we've had uh, or like I've had a, a very large impact in helping them to reform or to be progressive with pharmacy, where other states have been a little bit more challenging. Um, and that's both when I was at Walgreens and then I left Walgreens to basically help develop CVS's program until Walgreens recruited me back. That's why I call it my sabbatical because it was there for two years. But I, I, I feel like in a, the respect that's been given to me 
on those changes that were made have shown, you know, we, it, I will say this, if we didn't make the changes we made uh, over the course of, you know, the last 10 years, we wouldn't be able to do what we're going to be able to do in the next five. So I think hearing, hearing your experience, hearing how you were recruited at very early in your career into these leadership roles, I think the thing that comes to mind is how did you know what you were even trying to do? I didn't. Um, at first, I didn't. I, you know, it's, it was one of the things where I knew what Walgreens had the capability to do, and I knew what happened across all 50 states. And then once I understood that, and that took time, that took a couple years to completely understand what states were doing and have a, a glimpse nationally. And then once I, I did have that information, have that knowledge, it was easier for me to say, all right, this is working in these states, and, and you, you know, Texas, you need to do this, or Mississippi, you need to do this, or Florida, you need to do this, because this is where it's working well, and this is how this is going to push the envelope. But what really happened is, you know, very similar to what we're dealing with today with COVID, is H1N1 hit in 2010. Before then, pharmacists weren't given or administering vaccines. And so the federal government came in in 2010 and said, we need pharmacists to administer vaccines to help with H1N1. And so we had to train thousands of pharmacists to be able to provide vaccines. And then once they were doing that, and we basically H1N1 kind of subsided, it was like, we're not gonna go back, which is very similar to what you're seeing today. I mean, pharmacists can do vaccines, they can now administer uh, tests and, and offer treatment. And so we did this because of the demands of COVID. And it's like, we can't go back from that. So just as I was influential, and it wasn't just me, I mean, there was many people that were doing this. Um, I think we now have the same opportunity to be just as influential to show what pharmacists have the capability to do going forward based off of, unfortunately, a pandemic. But mm -hmm. that's kind of like that's, what fuels right. that the ammunition you need to, to make progress in, in, mm -hmm. in specific areas. So let's talk a little bit about your role as chair of the Illinois Board of Pharmacy, because I think that that was in conjunction with your work mm -hmm. at Walgreens, right? Correct. So in what way did that role help enable you to support the profession, to advance the profession? For, for me, it helped show Illinois, like, how things are, are being done elsewhere. And so, you know, there would be many times where we would have different rule changes or different processes that we were looking at, and it, it could be onerous to a pharmacist. And so having the knowledge that I had from, from my Walgreens experience and having that like national viewpoint, I was able to share with the board and with the memberships and with the agency, like where are things we need to do to make changes to make Illinois back at the top? Because at, at one point, Illinois was very progressive in their regulations and their statutes. And, At and what very, point was that? <laughs> <laughs> I would say, you know, around the 2005 to 2010 area. And then things got political and Illinois became kind of stagnant. But their rules were so far in advance that it was, you know, there wasn't really much change that needed to be made. And now you see they're dealing with different changes and different issues. And, and it's more focused not on how you progress forward with the, the practice, 
but how do you deal with some of the issues that we're dealing with in, you know, across, across the U.S.? How do you deal with working conditions? Mm -hmm. How do you deal with challenges from different constituents about, you know, the workplace conditions and safety and, and, and what have you? And so, you know, some of the changes that have been made over the last five, six years where it's like mandatory counseling and, and some of these other changes are because we weren't doing what we should have been doing. And so there was a, a, a I won't say a lax, but there was a broad regulation and now they're ma they've made them more restrictive because given that broad authority in some ways led to issues. And I don't know if it was issues for financial advancement or if it was issues for a number of reasons, but that's kind of where I see Illinois gone. And you've, you've had individuals that are not pharmacists or not within the profession making those decisions. And so we have to get back to allowing pharmacists to help provide these decisions because they're the experts. We are the experts. You all are going to be the experts that will know best how to address some of these uh, challenges that will face us now and in the future. Let's talk a little bit about your time on the um, Pharmaceutical Collaborative Task Force. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> that was fun. Um, can you explain to our students what the goal of the task force was, why it came to be, and what it accomplished? Sure. So the, this Pharmaceutical Collaborative Task Force was a legislative order that came to be based off of a Chicago Tribune study that evaluated, just sort of just referencing pharmacists and in some of the work that they were doing or lack thereof. So lack of pharmacist counseling, uh, what they showed is they went into a number of pharmacies, uh, both chain and independent and regional pharmacies, to see if pharmacists were actually doing counseling. And what they found on, on dangerous interactions between drugs, and what they found is that they were not. Uh, and that it happened, I think it was like 34, 35% of the time. And so that's what led an open investigation into this collaborative task force because pharmacists were saying they didn't have time to do what they needed to do and that they didn't have the, the appropriate resources and that there were other challenges such as metrics and quotas that they had to meet that were causing them or taking them away from their responsibility to do the work that they needed to do as a pharmacist and that was taking care of their patients. And so that led to this task force, this, or this collaborative task force, which included basically individuals from every part of the industry. So there was chain pharmacy, there was independent pharmacies, there was the pharmacy associations, um, there was the board chair, there was somebody from the labor unions. And so there were a number of items that the, this legislative law required the, this collaborative task force to work on. And there was the State Medical Society. Yes, yeah, State Medical Society, too. I forget about Scott. Can't forget. Uh, yeah, we can't forget him. That is true. Which begs another question. is like, why is the State Medical Society intervening in pharmacy practice, and why are they sitting um, on a task force? And that's where I say sometimes things get a little political, and depending on the state. But they were involved, and they, for the most part, only opined in on things that they thought that they had information or education on. But we had to address, you know, CQI, which is continuous quality improvement. We had to address patient safety. We had to address metrics. We had to address working conditions. Uh, meal breaks um, is, is one of the things that were discussed and came from that. Quotas, advertising, and I'm trying to think, it, it was 
so many, it felt like it was so long ago and it was only three years ago, but that was the, the just, <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, that was the gist of it. And so this task force met for 18 months to discuss all of this, bringing in experts, bringing in individuals from other states. NABP, the executive director at the time, was, was there to speak on certain things that impacted patient safety. And there were a lot of outcomes that came out of this, or recommendations that came from this task force. And those recommendations then went back to the legislature for passage into the law. And so that's one of the reasons why in pharmacies you have a mandatory meal break for pharmacists. That was implemented as a result of this task force. Uh, there was also the requirement of a CQI program. That didn't pass the first time, but then the task force was required to meet an additional 11 months, uh, which part that became mandatory. There was also requirements in the law that now make it a violation of unprofessional uh, conduct if you require metrics or quotas or if you require unsafe working conditions. There was also a whistleblower. I forgot about the whistleblower protection. Yeah. So there was also language that brought in whistleblower protection. Because one of the things that, that pharmacists were saying is that they couldn't file a complaint or they couldn't complain to the Board of Pharmacy because then they would be retaliated by their employer. And so there was, although there was already language in place, it wasn't under the Board of Pharmacy. It was under Department of, uh, I think it was the Department of Education, or I can't remember. Um, but there was, it was under another agency, but it still included pharmacy. They made it clear to add that language into the uh, Pharmacy Act as well. And so those were, I mean, it, it, it was a very intensive process because you have to understand that you have all of these differing institutions and, and representation that are, that have their own individual interests. And at the end of the day, you have to get to a point where it's like, how do we come together to have a common interest to move forward with the changes that need to be done? And so. I mean, it took 18 months and then another 11 months, and I think you could have another collaborative task force that could meet now to make additional mm -hmm. changes. One of the other things I, I forget that came out of task force was that pharmacy technicians could do more under pharmacists, and that it was ultimately the pharmacist's responsibility to determine what that pharmacist, pharmacy technician was qualified and capable to do. And so as far as like administering immunizations, a pharmacy technician could do so if the pharmacist thought that they were trained and qualified to do so. And so it, gives a, it gave a lot more authority to the pharmacist to, to be able to determine how practice should be facilitated in a pharmacy. I remember those, those meetings. <laughs> they, they were extremely contentious. Um, and Dr. Carter navigated through that extremely well. I tried. Um, <laughs> and it seemed amazing that it took two years to reach what was reached, but mm -hmm. those were important changes. One last thing about, about your regulatory work. If you could wave a wand and enact one law or regulation right now to um, support the profession of pharmacy, to improve patient care, what would it be? In the state of Illinois or nationwide? We'll take Illinois. State of Illinois, prescription authority to give provider status to pharmacists. I, I, that's a regulatory change mm -hmm. that I would see. It's still going to require payer changes to right. be reimbursed for that. But, but Illinois is one where it's very challenging because of the political landscape that pharmacists don't have the prescriptive authority that they do or prescribers, the prescriptive authority or prescriber status that they do in other states. I mean, you see what like Idaho is doing, what Virginia is doing, what Tennessee, New Mexico, uh, Washington, Oregon, all these states are expanding the capabilities for, 
for pharmacists to be able to dispense oral contraceptives, to, to be able to work with nicotine cessation, to, you look at Idaho where pharmacists can prescribe 20 different drugs of chronic disease states. And we've been fighting over hormonal contraceptives mm -hmm. for the last five, six years, I think. Yeah. Um, so that would be my, that would be the first thing I would wave if given the opportunity to do so. Maybe someday. <laughs> Maybe, hopefully. So we're going to pivot a little bit because I want to talk more about you. Okay. Um, you mentioned Phil Burgess encouraging you, giving you an opportunity, but we're going to go back a little bit and then we're going to talk about your mentors and guides through your career. So starting out, how did you decide to become a pharmacist? Oh, that's a, it's an interesting story. So I actually was on road to do pre-med. Um, I had been accepted into a pre-med program. I had a full ride to do pre-med and I got into my second year of organic chemistry. I was a chemistry major, and I was like, I don't want to do biology, I want to do chemistry. And I saw more of the focus with, within pharmaceutical, and we actually had a dean, um, or assistant dean from the College of Pharmacy in Mississippi, uh, University of Mississippi, came and spoke, spoke to my organic chemistry class. And after that, I remember going home and calling my parents and be like, I'm switching majors. And so that's when I switched. I didn't know anything about pharmacy. I just knew that I love the aspect of medicine and, and more of that chemical aspect. And so that's mm -hmm. when I switched. What did your parents say? They were fine. I mean, okay. as long as I was happy, that didn't matter yeah. to them. I mean, they were trying to figure out how we're going to pay for it. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's why I had to work for yeah. the whole time I was in school. But Are yeah, you so the first a, pharmacist in your family? Yes, I'm the only pharmacist in my family. Okay. Yeah. Are there physicians? No, no okay. one else in healthcare except for myself. Oh, wow. So okay. I stay fresh on the knowledge because I get calls all the time mm -hmm. about, well, I have this and I have this and this doctor wants to do this. So it's, it's been interesting, but definitely fascinating in, in the yeah. same sense. You're listening to And Justice For All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. So, so you, your first job was in retail? My first job was in retail, yeah. I've, I've only worked, outside of working for NABP, I've only worked for Walgreens, and, well, except for my sabbatical. Um, <laughs> basically, I was, my first year of pharmacy school, it was my first day of pharmacy school, I, I was driving home, and there was a Walgreens on a corner. I was like, I'm going to see if they're hiring, and I went in, and wow. they were like, can you start tomorrow? And I was like, well, I can start whenever you want me to, but you know, going through the process, because it was, and one of the things I didn't know at the time, and this is in New Orleans, is that it was the busiest store in the region. And so like one of the things, and I know it's different for all of you today, because you can't necessarily hold a full-time job with your curriculum. It's very challenging. And you know, back when I went to school, it was still challenging, but we didn't have the different requirements that have to be done it was um, easier. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Back when I was in school, it was easier. You're not that far behind right. me. So. <laughs> that's true. And so that was, and so that's what I did. And, and I, I didn't know anything about retail. I didn't know anything about, like, I didn't know anything about pharmacy other than what the assistant dean from hmm. Ole Miss came to, or told us about it. And so that's where I was like, I'll learn here and then I'll see what I want to do. Because I, I ultimately wanted to go to pediatrics because I wanted to be a pediatrician. So mm -hmm. I was like, I want to work with kids. I want to interact with kids and, and help in that way. And so I was like, I'll do this now just mm -hmm. to earn money and, and help me along my way. And then I'll do some type of residency in pediatrics or, or something of that mm -hmm. sort and get back to that track I just 
and the track took off and went a different way. God has other plans for me. So, um, but yeah. Interesting. So your first job, you stayed with Walgreens. I stayed with Walgreens. So I worked four years in that store. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after I graduated, I went back to Mississippi and I became a pharmacist and worked in another Walgreens, or I was kind of floating through Walgreens, and then Hurricane Katrina hit, and then I got put into a store that basically went from filling like 50 prescriptions a day to 600 prescriptions a day overnight because it was only pharmacy that didn't get destroyed in like this 20 mile radius. And I was used to it because we were filling a thousand scripts a day in my New Orleans pharmacy. And so I moved there, I was there for about a year, maybe a little bit less than a year, and then I moved to Chicago in August of 2006. And what brought you to Chicago? The, the, the promotion to the, okay. the pharmacy the pharmacy campus recruiting position that they wanted me to do. So were you looking to get out of the store? I, no, I knew that my place in the store was gonna be limited because okay. I'm always up for like a new challenge and, and what mm-hmm. have you. I just didn't think that I was gonna stay with Walgreens. I thought that mm-hmm. I was gonna go into a different role with, within a different side of the profession. And I, you know, I remember at the time when I told him, I was like, I don't want to be a supervisor. I don't want to be in operations. I want to still have that interaction with patients mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis and, and do something more. But other plans came other in. Other plans came yeah. in. So would you say that Phil Burgess was a mentor to you? Or did you have other mentors? <laughs> I had other mentors. It's funny because Phil Burgess... So I started in pharmacy regulatory affairs under Phil in October of 2008 and then Phil retired in February of 2009 and so I I had you know five great months with him and I of course I still talk to him afterwards so yes I would consider him a mentor Mm -hmm. to me in in every aspect of it but there was two other individuals Dan Luce when I was an intern over a summer I interned with Walgreens at corporate headquarters um, in 2003 and and so I met Dan Lucen and became, met Dan Info at that time and became really close to Dan and would bounce things off as far as my career with him. And so he was a mentor to me as well. And then my father worked in retail as a store manager for probably 30 something years. And so, you know, I would always talk to him about different business aspects as well. So. Interesting. So it sounds, as you describe your career, it sounds like you didn't really know where you were going. Correct. From the beginning, but you, you just sort of followed opportunities as they came. And, and certainly they came because of skills and talents that you showed. I mean, I had an idea of what I wanted to do. I just didn't have that mm-hmm. role in mind developed to say, this is, right. this is a role I'm going for, because I didn't think there was anything at the time that fit. I mean, like, I feel that if I would have graduated now, mm-hmm. there are so many different opportunities and so many different routes that a pharmacist can take. Mm-hmm. It's a lot different than when I graduated. It's really chain pharmacy, independent pharmacy, hospital. And now, I mean, there's, you have pharmacists that don't even dispense. It's, mm-hmm. you're, you're providing clinical services all day or you're working for like a digital startup or, you know, there's, there's so many different you know, things going on out there. And who knows what is going to change over the next three to five years. I always tell everyone, and so I've, you know, been presenting to different associations. And one of the things I tell them is, you know, what we're doing now as pharmacists, we would have normally 
been doing maybe 10 years down the road, mm -hmm. but because of COVID that has escalated it mm -hmm. to where now we're doing what we've been, should have been doing 10 years ago. So who knows what we're gonna be doing in the next two to three years because there's so many different opportunities based off of the progress that pharmacists have made thus far. So can you describe a challenge that you faced? What, what was a low point in your trajectory, either in your education or in your career? That's a good question. I have some challenges the last couple of years. <laughs> I, I think- Some fresh ones. <laughs> yeah, there's some really fresh, you know, top of mind that- um, And you can describe those if- Sure, I, well, I, I mean, here recently, many of you have probably heard over the last what, last year we had, or this past year, we had an issue with the NAPLEX scoring. So there were 428 students, I think, that were impacted, where they originally received a notification that they failed the NAPLEX. 408 students received notification that they failed the NAPLEX, when in actuality they passed, and 20 students have received a notification that they passed the NAPLEX, when in actuality they failed. Yeah, it was, we had this system glitch, we have an update that occurs in our, our systems every month and the update that occurred at the end of August triggered our smart scoring application to where there was a glitch in that system. And so they thought they fixed it after they caught the first score, they didn't. And so it went on for another seven days. And so it was at the heightened time when individuals are taking their NAPLEX because you're getting ready for residencies and what have you. And so we had 428 students that were altered by this. And this was on a Thursday that we find this out, a Thursday night. And you know, once we notified the students on a Friday, my direct number was connected to the email. And so I'm getting all these calls from students saying, is this real, what's happening? And so imagine 400 students calling you on a Friday night at like seven o'clock, like what the heck is going on? Is this a joke or what have you? And so just trying to deal with that and deal with that over the weekend. And then, you know, have a little humility in addressing it with the colleges of pharmacy, with the students, and with you know everyone that you that the boards of pharmacy that needed to be addressed. And so that was, you know, that was something where other people could have taken a different road and and kind of been a, a little more dismissive about it. But at the end of the day, you have to accept when you've done something wrong or when you failed or when you've made an error. And I think. You know, for me, and you all will learn this, being pharmacists, everyone is going to make a prescription error. It is going to happen. You are human, you are not perfect. But when you do make that error, make sure that you correct it as soon as possible and you accept that you made an error. The biggest downfall that we see, or that I've seen, is that someone will make an error or they'll do something wrong and they don't accept it. It's like, it's not my fault. They'll place blame on someone else. And so I remember the I've been practicing, which brings up another one I can talk about. I was practicing for probably three, four months. And it was on a Saturday, there was two kids, got their prescriptions mixed up. One was for Adderall and the other was for uh, antibiotic. And so the kid was going to soccer who was supposed to be getting the antibiotic and received the Adderall and parent gave one to the kid and said, this doesn't look right and called me and it was like, you got the wrong medication. I gave it to them. And so, you know, I had to quickly correct it and say, you know, I'm completely at fault. I, I apologize and, you know, do this for, sorry for this inconvenience. How can we make this easy for you because of what I've done? And 
they're, they were more accepting to know that we noticed it right away and called them right away and, and made the appropriate changes, calling the physician, making sure there is comfort in everyone else, um, and uh, comfort to their kids and to the family to, to address it. And, and so you're going to have, you're going to be caught into those situations. And the best thing you can do is own it and, and say, you know, you've made a mistake and you're going to do whatever you can to correct it and, and move on from there and learn from it. And so don't be down on yourself. I think that's the challenge is either you take the aggressive high road and dismiss it or you go into a place where it's like, I can't do this anymore. And we're all dealing with mental health challenges now. And you'll see that is a, a, a I won't say it's a trending topic, but it is, it is something that is being brought to, a t- uh, to greater attention, whereas before, it was brushed under the rug. It's like stigmatism to it because of you don't want to be someone who's dealing with some type of mental health issue where as now it needs to be brought out because you need to make sure you're getting appropriate help and care and, and what have you. And it's going to affect many of us. I mean, we're all going to have breakdowns at some point. Hopefully it's when you're like at a midlife crisis or something, but it, it will happen. And so just accepting that and, and, and making sure that you that you seek the appropriate care and that you seek the appropriate attention or, or other things that I've seen just in practice that have impacted me or, or things I've taken and learned from and, and gone from there. The other thing I'll say, and, and this is something that I took to heart immediately after I graduated was licensed. In Mississippi, I used to work on my off days in a charity clinic. It was a St. Vincent de Paul charity clinic, and I would work there with a uh, with an older pharmacist who was retired and was just doing it as his way to give back to those less fortunate. And one of the things he told me that I'll never forget, he actually also worked for Walgreens. And I asked, I was, you know, just sparking conversation was like, have you, you know, have you ever gone into operations? Have you ever been a supervisor or anything else like that? And the one thing he said to me was in, and I, I don't know why I never forgot this, but he was like, I had the opportunity to go to Texas. And he's like, I told them no, because I wanted to stay closer to family. And he's like, after that, I was never given another opportunity. And so it's one of the things where it's like, don't ever say no to anything, because you don't know when they're going to ask you again or if they're going to ask you again. Although I didn't listen to my own rule when I told Phil Burgess no uh, to the position two times. But, but yeah, that was something that kind of stuck with me, because... You, you don't know if you'll get another opportunity because in the minds of someone, they may think of it as like, well, this person doesn't want to advance or they don't want to pursue greater responsibilities within their role. And so it was something that kind of stuck with me and has stuck with me since. Wow, some good advice. Yeah. yeah. We're going to shift gears for a couple minutes. So the profession of pharmacy in America is becoming more racially diverse, and we're thrilled to have a student body that represents world religions, different races, and and it's part of our mission here at Roosevelt. But the majority of our leaders in the profession are white. So despite despite seeing a lot of diversity among our practitioners, have you encountered challenges because of issues of racial diversity? I won't say that I have. I mean, we all, I've dealt with my own racial issues throughout my life and, and specifically in certain roles, I'd say. But what I see now, and you know, our current president is uh, female. Our next, well, not our next president, but our president-elect is an African-American woman, and she'll be the first African-American woman president of NABP if she continues to pursue that. And so it's like, 
I find that like baffling that it's, we're gonna be in 2023, 2024 to have the first African-American woman. But one of the things I've noticed, and one of the things that, that we've been working on is to get more diversity on the boards of pharmacy. And the challenge is that many individuals don't know about getting appointed to a board of pharmacy and, and that you know, there is this opportunity to, to, to participate there. So that's one. The, the challenge, the other challenge that I've dealt with, and I've dealt with this in front of boards of pharmacy, is the implicit racism, implicit biasness. And, you know, depending on where you are, and hey, I'm from Mississippi, so nothing against the South, but I've presented in the South before where it's like, I am not going there again, just from the encounter that I had. And part of it was because I was African-American. The other part was because I was from Walgreens. And it's kind of like a double whammy for, for wow. dealing with, with the boards. And so that was... You know, but that's one of the things where it's like, hey, you can only do what you have the capability to do and don't give up from doing it. So just continue to educate, 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 and like treat them as if you want to be treated. They may not treat you that way in the beginning, but eventually they'll turn. And it may take a long time before they do that. But that is, is something that I looked at as far as for me, it's like, well, I can't change everyone. I can't change everyone now. But eventually, I'm going to change you because I'm going to continue and work, work, work at it until I do break you. And it may take a little while to do so. But we, NABP has been looking at this as far as educating board and board members and board staff on implicit racism mm -hmm. and, and how, you know, how they may not know what they're doing, but they're actually doing or actually are providing racism in a certain way and within the authoritative power that they have. Um, and so we're training, we're doing training. We've been talking to the different governors associations, the Democratic Association, the Republican Governors Association, the National Governors Association, say we need the governors to start appointing more diverse boards. Not only is the profession more than 60% women, but you also have, you know, 15, 20% African Americans, 15, 20% Asians, and there is no representation of them or of people of color or different nationalities on the boards. I mean, the state of North Carolina and I, the executive director there was our former chair last year. They just appointed their first black person to the Board of Pharmacy ever. It's 2021 when they're doing, you know, when they're doing these kind of things. And so it's like that kind of stuff is like baffling. And so we need to get more awareness out there. And so we received this grant to start working with with these different associations. But it's not just in pharmacy. We're working with the boards of medicine, we're working with the boards of nursing because they're dealing with the same issue. And so that is what we've seen or what we're looking at to try and expand the diversity efforts and, and to be more inclusive. And how do we, you know, one of the other things that we're starting to look at and we're doing it in April is we're doing this diff analysis, which is a differential analysis to, to provide a, a better landscape of our exams. So do different people take our NAPLEX exam differently? Does it impact them in a different way? And so we're bringing in all these individuals to take the, our NAPLEX exam and then to provide feedback on how they view it because a different culture or different nationality or different religion may look at something totally different than someone else does. And we have to make sure that when we offer a standardized exam, it's standard for everyone. And so that's something else that we've been looking at as to be more inclusive and to make sure that we're addressing all populations and, and, and all nationalities and, and just 
removing those racial walls and, and those barriers that are preventing others from being able to advance as well. I'm really happy to hear that because I, standardized exams are sort of you know, endemic to structural racism. Mm -hmm. And there's so many studies, not only about the NAPLEX, but other standardized exams that have shown that people from different backgrounds mm -hmm. succeed at different rates on those exams. Yeah. And we certainly don't want to have a structural hindrance to the success of diverse applicants. Thank you, Dr. Mm -hmm. Carter. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.